The Fourth Wall, Episode 7, Terry Gilliam. You're listening to The Fourth Wall, a podcast that takes you beyond the screen or the page and brings you into our conversation with the creative people behind your favorite movies, TV shows, comics, and more. My name is Matthew Shuckman. I'm a contributing writer here at Den of Geek, and today we are talking to Monty Python animator, breakthrough filmmaker, the one, the only, Terry Gilliam. With the release of The Man Who Killed Don Quixote finally a reality, he was here in New York to talk to us about making the film, the performances of its stars Adam Driver and Jonathan Price, and of course, just why you may not want to watch this film, or let alone any film, on a cell phone. Enjoy. Well, thank you for your time. I really appreciate it. Well, thanks for somebody to talk to. I'm, gonna sit, I'm, I'm a gonna lonely s- guy. <laughs> well, you know, if you want, you can call me at night, and uh, we can talk about, you know, whatever is bothering you. I don't mind. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we got to talk about The Man Who Killed Don Quixote. Right. So, so we shall. how much changed from the original film to this version of the production? Well, there was always a Toby character who was in advertising, and there was always a Quixote, but the difference was that Toby really, it, it, he got a bump on the head at one point, ends up in the 17th century, it's, you know, Connecticut Yankee, yeah. uh, and that was the big difference, and it, 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 it seemed kind of a dumb idea after a while, and especially after NATO jets and everything, I thought, for, let's be practical, if we're going to get money to make this thing, let's make it contemporary, that's the first thing, and, and then we made this leap to seeing Toby 10 years earlier, when he was... Innocent, I suppose, you know, and and before the corruption set in. And that was really good and also solved, it did several things. It gave us Toby's sense of guilt because he's going to this little village and fucks up a lot of people's lives. That's important. And he's trapped in a sense, he's like Frankenstein with his monster trapped. <laughs> and it also, but it really solved our Dulcinea problem because we were always struggling who is this Dulcinea in the previous version? It wasn't very successful, but the idea of having made this little film and gave this little village girl hopes and dreams, <laughs> they all go bad. <laughs> well, it's not totally bad. She ends up with this incredible rich oligarch, and she seems to be happy, yeah. content to put up with the bullshit and shit she has to put up with. Yeah. But what? how much of then what this iteration became was effects of the whole production issue from the original. Because it seemed, it, it, to no. me, another no, no, everybody's finding that. Yeah. I'm learning that that's what it's about now. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I wasn't thinking of that. Particular, I mean, we've got, obviously, a couple of references, like, you know, this is the one month that never rains, yeah. all of that stuff. So that was about the only real connection or thought of the original production. Well, it's, I think it's funny, uh, you know, I don't know what other people are thinking, because I came out of it saying that I could have taken the entire thematic version, what I was presented here, and think of it at any point in your career matching what you're trying to say. But in the same breath, I could say, well, I could see maybe he's trying to take this on a personal route. Uh, and, you know. There was, there was always in the back of my, my mind, somewhere, because I kept thinking about Fanny and Alexander and Amarcord, two films made late in a director's mm-hmm. life, which are very much a summation of so many of the thoughts and ideas of their lives or tropes and and so that was always in the back of my head, and it's obviously reared its ugly head <laughs> <laughs> to the unsuspecting audience who watch it. <laughs> well, what about then changes of maybe a personification of Cahote himself? Because as talented as Gene Rothford yeah. and John Hurt were, yeah. I don't see them being as 
kind of airy as Jonathan's performance was. No, that's why the film waited till the right person came along. It's almost like, yes, they were all going to be very different. John Hurt would have been probably a bit more tragic, less funny. Uh, Jean Rochefort was always going to be slightly distant and... Uh, and Jonathan came in and grabbed it and just shook it until it, it wouldn't die, basically. Well, it's, it's, it's funny because it's one of those performances where, like, I don't see anybody else doing it, even though I knew there were so many other people before yeah, who yeah. were technically there. And what, well, what I really like is the Spanish crew, and especially the Spanish editor, Teresa Font, she just said, there will never be a better Coyote. This Welsh <laughs> actor coming in <laughs> pretending to be a Spaniard. It's somehow, that's what I really like is how they the Spanish who'd grown up with Quixote, so loved what Jonathan was doing. I just was enjoying every moment because he was breaking so many of the limitations that were sort of in there, finding humor when there was only a little glimmer of it. And he was ad-libbing a lot. He just was so excited to be doing it. He pulled out all stops. He's, a, he's always been a big show-off, and this was his chance. <laughs> Well, the other thing I think I find interesting is because I remember, I, I can't remember now if it was actually in the Los La Mancha documentary or just somewhere I read yeah. you talking about the idea that you had these great young actors back in the time of Johnny Depp, you yeah. know, and, and, yeah. and uh, Matt Damon and Heath Ledger, yeah. you know, want to work with you so you can use them as a bankability factor. But what about the idea of Jonathan, since now there's so many young audiences that are known from Game of Thrones, as a bankability factor? That's a total coincidence, because when we, when we started with Jonathan, he wasn't bankable. <laughs> now he's not just Game of Thrones, but he's the Pope. He'll be the Pope soon. Jonathan is hot, but that was back then. Raising money, Adam was the key. Me and Jonathan were very second-rate compared <laughs> to Adam's power. That's how it works. <laughs> well, then also then let's talk about Adam then and what he brought to the role compared to, again, what you were originally thinking of. I was saying about somebody earlier, he is a little bit like what Jeff Bridges was to Fisher King. Hmm. He's the grounding quality. He keeps it on the ground. He doesn't cheat. He doesn't go for a cheap laugh. He is solid. And... And that's what I liked about him. I mean, I, I didn't know what he was going to do. It was just when I first met him, I thought, this guy's so different from any other actor I bumped into. If you're crazy enough to go off and join the Marines just because a couple towers got blown up in New York, that's very different than most actors. That's just a serious guy. And I, I love that. And what is so good about this, I've never seen girls. I haven't seen Patterson. I saw his first Kylo Ren. That's it. I've seen Black Plasma now. So I, it was a purely instinctive feeling about him because he didn't look like what I had in mind. He didn't behave like what I had in mind. And that was what was exciting. I didn't know what the results were. And they're, they're brilliant. I think he shows his range in this movie. I mean, from one asshole to almost sublime at the end. He's, he's incredible. He's funny. He's always touching. He just, like Jeff Bridges, he doesn't cheat. <laughs> Let's talk about also then, because now thinking about just the pictures that you had written, uh, you know, I'm kind of omitting uh, stuff like Fisher King at this point, uh, yeah. and 12 Monkeys, because everybody, you know, wanted to go back to the idea of the studio trying to push the happy ending for Brazil. You know, and the ending here, in essence, is, it's not ambiguous, but it is ambiguous in a way, because there's, there's a happiness to it. Yeah. But do you think everybody's coming away that way? I don't know. I've had enough people say at the end, they just, there was one lady who was an agent. She said, I felt I was walking on pink clouds when I left. Now, yes, I think enough people really respond to that ending. And, and 
And it came out, it's not exactly what we had written. We had just written uh, with Toby and Angelica riding off into the sunset, and he says what he says. But it was during the rehearsals when we were doing the first read through with Joanna, Adam, and, and Jonathan. And Adam, and I'd asked Adam to try to speak a little bit like Coyote, like, uh, like um, Jonathan. And as he was starting and doing the line, suddenly Jonathan joined in and he just kept going. And it was like, wow! And, and that's what we did in the end. And that's what, it's wonderful. I think Rocky Banos's music is fantastic. And when I first heard that, and I thought, oh, we're almost to a Hollywood happy ending here. I was a little <laughs> bit nervous. But people seem to respond to it, so I'm, I'm delighted. What about then also, you know, and I don't want to just talk about only differences between the original production and this one, but, mm. you know, as soon as I got out of the film, I went home and I rewatched Lost in La Mancha just to kind of yeah, remind yeah, myself yeah, of a few yeah. things. Because I, I totally forgot about the idea of you wanting to do the marionette battle scene. Wow, yes, yes. Um, <laughs> so on and so forth. So coming to this version of it, how much was just the idea of changing it from a contemporary to what were the limitations of this budget, of what we could do practically or digitally? No, it was like... What it really was was holding on to scenes from Cervantes that we liked. Mm. That was the first thing. And then it was readjusting it all considerably. And that was it. And once we got into the idea of Toby 10 years earlier and Angelica, it all just went very simply. But so much of it is still the same. Yeah. And, you know, I'm, I've read the criticisms already. I'm cramming too much. Was, I had too long to play with it in all those years, and I didn't know when to stop. Well, that's not exactly true. I mean, we we're trying to be. It's longer than I would have liked it, mm. but that's mainly because of the long credits at the end. It's five minutes of credit. <laughs> Well, let's, let's, let's change gears then a little bit and talk, because again, I, I think I was talking to you very quickly for Zero Theorem and the idea that you had specifically shot it knowing that people were going to watch it on their phones almost. That was my joke. <laughs> but <laughs> It's a reality. <laughs> yeah, well, I'm wondering now, the idea that Time Bandits will be the, the Apple TV show, and, and you know you didn't have anything to do with the 12 Monkeys production... How much are you connected to the time bands? Because I know you're listed as producer. I'm trying to work out how much. <laughs> to be quite honest, I don't know yet. I'm I'm an executive producer on the thing, and I'm still trying to discover how much power I have or don't mm. have. Did you have any say in the idea of hiring Tyco? Nope. Do you enjoy Tyco? I haven't signed my contract yet, so nobody consulted me. I, I like him. I think it's a good idea. I think it's a good choice. He's for Ragnarok. I thought smart guy. He's got a sense of humor. I haven't seen his other stuff, but. Mm. Uh, I just he's a smart guy, so it's an interesting choice. I wasn't involved. <laughs> I'll say I'll say this though: when you yeah. see his his earlier works, and yeah. I'm talking about before everybody. I think everybody kind of jumped on the bandwagon with what we do in the shadows before that. No, you'll you'll really, yeah. you're you're, you're going to enjoy it. Yeah, no, I think it's right up your alley actually. Yeah, because I mean, yeah. what I saw in Thor Ragnarok it surprised me. Really good humor. <laughs> the guy's got a good touch. No, it, it. it definitely works. Yeah, um, but then let me go then to the idea of working with streaming services and the possibility of it because they seem to just give you they give people creative control it seems oh yeah uh, yeah. is that something that you kind of want to involve, like, well that's all I want to accept that's it? the way I work exactly. I've always worked that way so nothing new if you head towards the streaming services because Amazon was originally had America and the UK yeah. until the legal bullshit around Cannes they jumped ship yeah. but you go where the money is and when you look at the, you know, there's the Coen brothers, there's Alfonso Cuarón, everybody's moving over to the way you can, it's about storytelling. And you've got more time. You don't have to just do a two-hour film. You can 
get into series. Yeah. All that stuff is there. So I don't know. And people obviously have bigger TV sets these days. <laughs> but always, when you think about all, all the films made, more people watch them on d DVDs at home. It's when they get down to their iPhone that I want to start harming them physically <laughs> when I see them watching something I've done. It's yeah. crazy. It's stupid. It is just they're not able to experience what you're doing when you work like when I sit watching Star Wars or something that scale on that. It's ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, my problem is with cinema. You're the small little person around the campfire, and there's the big campfire screen, and there's this spectacle going on. And you take it. Now, with that, you're the big thing. And the story, and the storytelling is the little thing to serve you. Fuck that. <laughs> well, yeah. but I guess, I guess the big question is, though, as much as that may be yeah. the reality, unfortunately, yeah. you know, you, again, you say, well, you have creative control no matter what you do. That, you yeah, know, yeah, yeah. But they are apparently, they're, from what I understand when I talk to people, their executives yeah. are just completely hands-off. Yeah. Just like, do what you want. It's not even like, I mean, they'll give you a note or two, yeah, and that's yeah. it. So is that a compromise being willing to be made if it means the, the product is on a smaller screen? Well, I don't mind as long as it's not on an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> so you said it'd be a big 52-inch television at home. I can't control any of that, so I don't ultimately care if, if we get things made. And I mean, it's like something like Zero Theorem could have been just for that. It's yeah. not got scale. It's when I'm dealing with scale, and I think that's part of the experience. Then you're frustrated if it's being watched on a little screen. Mm. What about then projects coming up? Are there things that you're working on on past original scripts, stuff like The Defective Detective, maybe? Well, that was floating. Mean, in fact, I'm seeing Richard LeGravenet's tomorrow. It's always been floating in there, and it's we played with it a couple of years ago, seeing if we could expand it into, say, a six-part series. Yeah. Who knows? It may happen uh, because I don't think it'll end up being a film, because unless I've got you know, Tom Cruise, Matt Damon, everybody in it, it won't happen. His, mm -hmm. The money isn't there. I mean, I mean Marvel, uh, they've really captured all the money that's there to make movies with. Yeah. <laughs> well, then if Marvel came and said, Terry, we want you to do one, would you actually sit and do one? Probably not. I don't think I can compete with them. I don't mm -hmm. think I'm technically as adept or get that much pleasure out of technology is the directors that are doing those things. They're massive. Yeah. And again, you've got to farm it out to so many people. I still prefer to think I'm a craftsman. My hand's making it, and those are just close. I mean, I, I've known enough people who've got into the big Harry Potter and all this, and it's a bit, a bit like a factory job. Yeah. And I don't want to do that. Well, that's completely understandable, and that's what I would yeah. expect or suspect from, yeah. from that type of atmosphere. That being said, now bringing it back to, to Quixote, yeah. in a way, though, if it means it's the only way to keep your dreams going, is that the way to go? No, it is. But I would demand control. That's yeah. all. They give me control. I'll work around it. That was part of what I was doing in Quixote. I was actually going out of my way to not be like Avengers X-Men. It all is in the yeah. real world. We're not building fantastic sets and things. I shot it outside with all the restrictions and dangers of shooting outside. Because I wanted you to smell and feel it, textures, not fake stuff. Yeah, I mean, fantasy doesn't have to necessarily be fantasy. But it's what bothers me about so much, much of it. There's no, none of the tension between dreams, fantasy, and the reality. I mean, the image that takes place in Brazil when Jonathan is trying to fly with his wings and, and out of the pavement comes Ian Holm, the pavement man. 
pulling him back. That's, that, to me, is the perfect image, <laughs> trying to fly while you're restricted by reality. That's all. Yeah. And I and that tension. But once I'm watching the big films, I mean, they entertain me. I can't complain about that. But I think at a certain point, I don't feel there's any real tension there. They get out of this thing. This yeah. is easy. It's also... You know, a world full of green screens and essence. Not that they do practical stuff as well, but yeah. I imagine you still. W- I mean, if you didn't have to use CGI, right. you wouldn't use it. Is that still the case? No, but I do. There's, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. There's in there's scenes in like when Adam and the Dead Mule is. He's on this hillside, but the background is not what you see in the <laughs> film. The background is a bunch of uh, agricultural land. <laughs> <laughs> so you use it that way. You use it to yeah. enhance things, but I don't want to be. And that's why I like the giants. I just do it the old-fashioned way with real people. And it's, I still like working that way. I just think there's surprises when you're working with those kinds of limitations. I don't want to do everything I want to do. I like the restrictions because it forces me to get clever. Yeah. <laughs> that's all. Well, I mean, that's, that, that ends up being, I mean, yeah. talk about the famous Hollywood mistakes, in essence, that end up being the greatest thing for the film. That's yeah. almost the same I thing. Know. And it's like that. I think... If given a huge budget, I wouldn't have anything to push against, and I would just want everything. And that's not you can't focus that mm. way. By the limitations, you're focused. Now you, well, I can't do that. Can I do it this way? And it's it's it keeps the process of making the film exciting, frustrating, and exciting every day because that's why I don't do pre visits. Oh, that's a, you've worked it all out in advance. So you just you don't need to exist anymore. You can hand it over which is what's done, yeah. handed over to other people to do it. How much of the little details that you put in do you even forget that you've put in there? And I'm talking about, for instance, I'm watching the movie and I see that the town's called Sueños. Now, yeah. in my limited Spanish, I know that means dreams. Yeah. Well, that's, that's <laughs> obvious. We do this. It's all planned. <laughs> and, yeah, and it's, uh, it's just assuming there's enough people who can speak Spanish to understand what we're saying. And the others that don't, well, it doesn't matter. It's trying to build a world, and so the detail are the things that make the world believable, it seems to me. So detail is I spend a lot of time on. And again, it's partly, some of it's just to entertain myself, because I've been thinking about the film for so long. And now let's do this instead. Oh, fuck. I know I've spent years with that idea. Fuck, I've got a better one. Take this cushion. Do so. <laughs> so you feel, st- I mean, I, I don't think you should, and I don't think anybody should, but how surprised or pleased are you with the fact that there are so many fans that are still like, it's, it's, it's here, we're getting yeah, it, yeah. thank you. That's wonderful. I mean, it really is. The fear of all that is they've been expecting it for so long, and their version of the film <laughs> may be a lot better than mine. <laughs> that is the problem. I hate high expectation. I really do. I want people, if I introduce films, I, want to, I say just lower your expectation. Yeah. This is just another film. I mean, I've read enough stuff that's been written about this already. That, okay, 29 years or whatever, was it worth it? No. Is the, I mean, it's, this is the review, how it goes. Well, that's correct. But for me, it wasn't 29 years. It's what I made in the last couple of years. Yeah. A film that I started, we started shooting, things changed. That's what it is, nothing more. And the idea that you spend a long time doesn't mean you're perfecting something. But that's how it seems to be expected. <laughs> Well, you know, I think I think what's funny about it is that I think there are so many people who are so want to be in love 
with mm. this, that story of it. Mm. It's the same thing that people wanted to be in love with the idea that they thought Heath Ledger was so yeah. damaged by being the Joker. Uh, yeah, yeah, duh, yeah. You know, that, that's more fascinating to them almost than the product itself. But that's, I've always, there was a book I had years ago, a book photographed by a guy named Roloff Benny, and it's called Something of Ruins, The Dream of Ruins. And he's just a photographer who photographed ruins because the unfinished thing or the destroyed thing, your imagination goes to work. And we all love doing, imagining what that must have been like. And it's probably better than what was. <laughs> <laughs> you know, yeah, I mean, it makes yeah. complete sense, but yeah. until you're the guy who goes and does it, yeah. who's the know? You know, I, I think that's actually it. I think that's everything we have for you, for you yeah. today. And I really appreciate your time. And no, uh, it's nice. Well, I mean, if there's one thing uh, I relish more than anything now, it's being able to sit across from Terry Gilliam, a man whose films you know, shaped a bit of who I am today, and, and watch the joy in his face as he recants uh, a scene from Brazil. Uh, there's nothing better than that, and I am grateful for his time to talk to us and grateful for all the things he does. But uh, that will wrap things up for this episode. Come back in two weeks for the next edition of the podcast, where we'll break through that fourth wall once again and talk to another creator or performer behind the entertainment that you love. Remember to follow Den of Geek on Twitter and Facebook at Den of Geek US. My name is Matthew Shuckman, and you can follow me on Instagram at Shallot Stash. Find more content at denofgeek.com, and thank you for listening. Join us again next time, Beyond the Fourth Wall. Beyond the Fourth Wall.